Well, this morning we're continuing in our series in the book of James, which we kicked off last week. And the series that we're in, as we're, we're looking at James's letter to um, early Christians, is called Faith That Works. Because that's really what James is all about. James is all about helping us as Christians have a faith that doesn't just impact our lives, but it also impacts the world around us. And so last week we started off talking about how a faith that works, um, it engages our head, our hearts, and our hands. It engages all of who we are. And last week we, we began to look at a theme that runs throughout James's entire letter, and that theme is this, that he doesn't want people to just be hearers of God's Word. He wants people to be doers of God's Word. He doesn't want us to just know what we should do or who God is calling us to be. He wants us to be people who live it out every single day. And this message, it runs throughout the entire book, and it's a, it's a very timely message in our culture. Because in our culture today, people are sick and tired of hearing the church uh, preach one thing, teach one thing, and believe one thing, and then live the exact opposite. And so what's happening is as people see this disconnect between who we claim to be as the church and how we're living as the church, more and more people who grew up in the church are saying, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that. And people who've never had any experience in church, they're looking at our lives and at the church today and they're saying, you know what, I don't even know if I want to waste my time and worship a God like that. And so this disconnect between hearing and knowing and doing, it's a major challenge for us. And James challenges us to begin living out our faith. And this challenge, it was a challenge for them back in the early days of Christianity as well because people weren't just coming to faith, sitting around in all these intellectual debates and arguments about Jesus. Some people were coming to faith that way. But a lot of people in the early church were coming to faith because they were seeing the Christian community in action. They were seeing faith in action, and so they saw the Christians in their lives together and how much they loved one another and how they loved people who were very different from them, and how they loved God, and that was attractive to people. People were drawn to the church because of that love. And so that's one of the key ways that the early church began to grow. And as they came to the community, they learned about Jesus and his love and his death and his resurrection for them. But as new people were coming into the Christian community, there were some challenges that were arising. Uh, Some bad things were going on, and that's what James addresses in his letter in the part we're going to read today. And so I want us to look together this morning at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, at at this this problem that was arising in the Christian community as more and more new people were coming into their worship gatherings. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have some out in the lobby. Love for you to grab one after the service, or if you have the Bible app on your phone, you can read it there. But here is what James writes. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or or sit on the floor by my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it's pretty straightforward to see what's going on here. In the early church, as new people were coming into their community, some churches were showing favoritism. 
And they were judging people based on their outward appearance by what they were wearing. And, and clothes in our culture are important. I'm glad you're wearing them this morning. Clothes, they're important, right? They, they symbolize different things. But in their culture, it was the same way. They symbolized even more things. They, they helped reveal somebody's social status or their occupation, where they were in kind of the scheme of things. And so people are coming in, and when people were coming in and they were wearing gold rings and fine robes, they said, oh, these are important people. And so they were giving them the choice seats, the places of honor, and they were welcoming them, and they were, they were being really generous and kind, saying, oh, come on in. And then when people were wearing filthy clothes, people who were obviously poor were coming in, they were kind of pushing them to the side and to the back. They're saying, oh, no, no, all the seats are full, but we got something back there kind of away from the places of honor, away from the center of attention. So you, you can kind of go over there. They were showing disdain for the poor who were coming in. And what's interesting with this social dynamic that's going on is that the people James is writing to were largely poor themselves. And so they knew what it was like to be treated with disdain because of their place in life. They knew what it was like to, to not have the choice seat, to not have the seat of honor. They knew what it was like to be pushed to the margins, and yet, there they were, showing favoritism and judging people with evil thoughts. That's what James said. And now, a lot of times when we think of evil thoughts, we think of, you know, planning to hurt somebody physically or plotting to destroy somebody emotionally. That's what we think is evil thoughts. But the evil thoughts they were thinking of, a lot of times, they're, they're thoughts that a lot of us have, and they kind of, they get a pass. Because what was happening is these people in the early church, when people came in, they were having this evil thought. What can I get from them? What can I get from them? And so when somebody who had a lot of money was dressed up well came in, they thought, oh, what can I get from them? Well, perhaps if they have a good experience, we can, we can get some more money for the church. And maybe we wouldn't have as much poverty among us, so we could get some more money, we could get some resources. And in the early church, these poor people, these poor Christians, they were actually being persecuted by a lot of the rich people. They were being thrown in court. They were being persecuted economically against their businesses and all these other ways. So perhaps they were thinking, well, if we welcome the rich people in, the people who have influence in society, maybe we can get uh, a higher place or a little more prominence. Maybe we can get a little more respect. And they were thinking, well, if they, they come in, maybe we can, we can get some more honor. We, we can get our reputation back as a church, and, and we, can, we can spread the gospel even further. They were thinking, okay, what can we get from them? And that, to us, doesn't seem that bad of a thought, right? It's like, okay, well, that's pretty normal. A lot, a lot of times we view people that way. But where we see the evil come in is when we apply that same way of thinking to the poor people who are coming in their midst. Because when the poor people were coming in, they were thinking, oh, what can we get from them? They were thinking, well, we can't get much. Uh, we might get more problems. We might get more financial issues. Well, if we have them come in and they stay, well, maybe we're going to get more of a bad reputation and maybe we're going to get more persecution. Maybe we won't get anything good. James says they were discriminating. They were playing favorites. They were viewing them through this lens of what can I get from them? And as they were, they were viewing people as objects rather than viewing them as people uniquely created in the image of God. 
And James says, look, this has to stop. And really, what they were doing is they were reflecting the culture around them. Because the culture around them was treating them like objects and was constantly asking, well, what can we get from you? And if there wasn't much, they were just discarding them. And it's not too hard to see that our, our culture and our world isn't that different today, right? At least a lot of times I know if I'm honest with myself that my heart isn't always that different. And I thought about this week as I, I was going through my phone, browsing some social media, and I came across this video of Justin Bieber. Now, any Justin Bieber fans in here? No, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Not yet, not yet. Any Justin Bieber fans in here? I, I want to give you an opportunity to represent. Wow, okay, we got one in the back. Thank you. Thank you. I have a friend. So, you know, I follow Justin Bieber on some different social media sites. So I, I was browsing the internet, and I came across this video of, of Justin Bieber. So let, let's play this video and turn up the volume a little bit. Justin Bieber leading worship. Did you know that he led worship? No, you didn't know that because you're not a fan. But look, if you're a fan, you would have known that. So here's Justin Bieber. It's a very interesting video. He's singing Reckless Love, the song that we sang earlier. And he's, he's not just singing it. He's leading it in worship at Coachella, which is a music festival out in California that has over 250,000 people. So one Sunday morning, they had a small worship service there. He happened to be leading, and, and there he was, and it kind of went crazy on social media, and when I saw this video, I immediately said to Emily, wouldn't it be cool if Justin Bieber came to Harvest Point and came and led us in worship, right? I was like, Emily, that would be awesome, and look, like, well, Justin Bieber has a lot of connections to Atlanta, if you didn't know this. Uh, you know, his mentor is Usher, and he used to have a house in Atlanta. We're right near the airport, and I was thinking, Emily, if he came, we're near the airport, he could come down, he could just... You know, he could come on stage, we could get him to come up and lead Reckless Love for us, and it would be so exciting. And if you led Reckless Love, and people, you know, everybody, I know everybody would pull out their phones in here, right? You're not a fan, but you would start taking a video instantly, and you would post it, and you'd be like, yes, yeah, it's just my church this morning. And I thought, if people began to do that, then we could get some good press, and, you know, people would start hearing about our church more, and we'd start spreading the word. Maybe a newspaper would pick it up, and we'd, we'd get some free publicity. And, and then I was like, man... It would have Justin like checked in here. Then we'd have all of these young people, these believers. And y'all might not be comfortable with all these new Justin Bieber fans coming in our midst, but maybe some of them don't go to church. I was like, man, it'd be cool. We'd pack it out, go to two services. And then I thought, wow, what if Justin Bieber was here when the offering went around? <laughs> He'd just write that check, write that check, pay off our mortgages. I was like, man, we could, we could get that paid off. That would be amazing. I was thinking, we got to get him. So, you know, I sent him, a, I sent him a direct message. I sent him a message on Instagram. I said, hey, Justin, if you're ever in town, love for you to come to Harvest Point. We're not too far from the airport. He hasn't responded, hasn't probably read it. But in my excitement about all this, then I started studying this passage for this week, and I realized I'm doing the exact same thing that they were doing in the early church. The only reason I wanted Justin Bieber to come here largely is because of what I, because of what we could get from him. 
So I was treating him like an object. What could we get from him? But I know that not everybody here is a Bieber fan. You probably might not relate to that experience or my excitement. So I thought, you know what, let's make it practical for people. Let's just make a parallel of what we see in this text. So I was like, you know what? Let's just pay somebody to come to our church, pull up in a Mercedes and dress up pretty nicely and have them come into worship and see how they're treated and also pay somebody who, you know, maybe just needs a little cash. I'll tell them to dress poorly. They can come in our midst and we can see how we treat them and then we can invite them up and they could give a report on their experiences and how they were treated this morning. And so I want to call them forward to come and to tell us what, no, I'm just kidding, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. I thought about it, and people told me that was a bad idea because it would feel manipulative. And you never know what people are going to say on microphones. So I didn't do that, but I thought that would be interesting. I thought, you know what, that might highlight how at some level in our hearts we all do this. We all play favorites. We all discriminate. We all struggle with this same sin that James is talking about. Looking at people in terms of what we can get from them. And James, you know, he says very clearly, look, don't do that. But then he goes on in James chapter 2 in the preceding verses to explain why, why we shouldn't do that. And so in verse 5, he continues talking to the church. And he says this to them. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And mercy triumphs over judgment. James goes on to say that the reason why this is wrong is because what they're doing, what we do, it isn't reflecting the heart of God. And therefore, it's also not reflecting the heart of God's law. Because if you look at the Bible and you start in Genesis and you go all the way to the end, you'll find this theme that over and over again, God consistently chooses, uses, and saves people who are poor. People who in the eyes of this world have nothing to offer other people. And God chooses to save everybody. But we see this special emphasis for the poor and people who are at the margins of society. And so we see the people of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. They were poor. And God chooses to give them freedom. 
we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also the mother of James. We see her, a poor, young, humble virgin in a podunk village. And God chooses to use her and give her an amazing mission in life. And then in the fullness of time, God looks down at the world. He sees the sin and the brokenness, all the discrimination. He sees it all, and he says, you know what? We need to do something about it. And so God gives his one and only son, Jesus, into this world. And in Jesus' ministry, we see who he hung out with, right? He hung out with the poor, the outcasts, people at the edge of society. He hung out with the rich and the tax collectors, too. But he was most comfortable around those people who were at the edge. And he gave them mercy. He gave them dignity. He gave them forgiveness and the opportunity for new life. And he also gave them and he gave us the heart of God's law. And the sum of the heart of God's law, you probably know this, it's in the great commandment. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second part is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what James highlights here. Love your neighbor as yourself because in that command there is no room for favoritism. Because when Jesus was asked, who is your neighbor? He, he said, look, it's all people. All people are created in the image of God. Therefore, you're called to love all people. And Jesus, he didn't just teach this. He also lived it out. He put it into action. When he gave his life for all people. By dying on a cross so that we could be given salvation. New life. Mercy. Love and forgiveness. And then after he ascends into heaven, we see the Holy Spirit come down. And we see the Holy Spirit given to those people who are made new in Christ. And I don't know if you're beginning to see the difference in the heart of God and what's so often in our hearts. But the difference is this. Our hearts, a lot of times, are consumed with what we can get from other people. But God's heart is always consumed with what he can give to other people. We're often consumed with what we can get from other people. God's often consumed with what he can give to other people. And he wants our hearts to reflect his heart. And James highlights this heart of God and the good news of the gospel because he knows that the only way that our hearts can change is if we really understand this. If we really understand that God is a giving God, as James says earlier, every perfect gift in our lives comes from God. It comes from above. And God loved us so much that he gave us Jesus Christ. We can never repay him for that. In that sense, we're poor. But he gave Jesus to us so that we could have new life and mercy and forgiveness. And once we've experienced that new life, once we've experienced the embrace of God, the power of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's then that our hearts can change from the inside out. And our hearts can begin to move from focusing on what we can get to focusing on what we can give to other people. Basically, James is saying this, a faith that works seeks to give instead of get. Because when we're seeking to get, we're really just reflecting the world. But when we're seeking to give, 
we're reflecting God to the world around us. And this might sound exciting and cool and fun, but let me just warn you. When you begin seeking to give in all of your relationships without condition, when you seek to welcome all people no matter what they can offer you in return, God is going to take you to places that are oftentimes uncomfortable, unpredictable, and sometimes messy. That's the reality. And that's the reality of what happened at Grace United Methodist Church in Cape Coral, Florida. There in 1996, Pastor George Acevedo was appointed to be the pastor there. And when he arrived, uh, things weren't in good shape. The church at one point had been worshiping a thousand people. Now, attendance had dropped 75%. They had a lot of debt and they owed the IRS a lot of back taxes. And on top of that, the neighborhood around them was transitioning. And so the people in the church didn't reflect the people in the community. So George got there and they were kind of overwhelmed about what to do, how they're going to survive as a church. And in the midst of that season of challenge, they made one decision that changed everything for the church. They didn't decide to, to try to just get people in the church, get people who had a lot of resources and who could, who could finance things. They didn't decide, Let, let's go out and get people who can give to us. Now, instead, they began praying a prayer. And the prayer they prayed together as a church was this, Lord, send us the people nobody else wants. Lord, send us the people nobody else wants. That's what they began praying. And God, of course, began hearing it. And God began answering it. And so over time, people began to come to the church. But it wasn't people like who were in the church. It was people who were addicts, people who were escorts, people who were living day-to-day, week-to-week in hotels nearby. And they felt God calling them to create a recovery ministry. So they began doing that. And on Sunday morning, as these new people began to come in, It made a lot of people uncomfortable because these weren't people like them. They didn't know exactly how to interact like them. But over time, the church began to change and the church began to become a place of welcome. And people in that community knew that no matter who they were, no matter what they had to offer, no matter where they were in life, they were welcome in that place. And their Celebrate Recovery program, which they started, grew. It grew to over 800 people on a weekend. And then about 10 years after they started praying that prayer, they modified the prayer a little bit. And they began to say, Lord, send us the people nobody else wants. And they added this, Lord, send us to the people nobody else wants. And they began to go out. And they began to to find single parents and families where it was hard for them to get to church. They began to find people who were living in isolation and depression. They began reaching out to bikers and and everybody, every walk under the sun, they began going out and reaching them. And their church was revitalized. 
And hundreds and hundreds of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ who probably never would have stepped foot in a church otherwise because they were willing to risk. They were willing to embrace all people, even people who seemingly had nothing to offer them. They began having a faith that works, a faith that seeks to give instead of get, and God honored that. And I believe when we have that kind of faith, God will always honor it. And I believe God is calling us in his word and God is calling us as a church. He's calling us to become that type of place. To continue to be a church that welcomes all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, to embrace them and to help give them the love of Jesus Christ. And he's calling us to go out. To go out and to see the people that nobody else sees to love the people that other people in this world don't want and don't care about. I believe that's what God is calling us to. And he doesn't want us to just know it up here. He wants us to live it out day after day. So you're up for that mission? If you're up for it, Let's pray together that God will make it so here in this place. God, we confess that as individuals and as a church, so often we viewed people with evil thoughts. We viewed them as objects and we've thought about what we can get from them. So God, we ask that you would forgive us. And we ask that you would give us new eyes to see, new hearts to feel, new hands to welcome people. God, that you would transform us and that you would help us instead to become people who seek with all that we have and all that we are to give to other people. So God, this morning we pray that prayer that Grace Church prayed many years ago. We say to you this morning, Lord, send us the people nobody else wants. And send us out to the people nobody else wants or nobody else sees. God, as things get unpredictable, messy, and maybe more complicated, we pray that you would fill us with love. Fill us with the kind of love that empowered your son, Jesus Christ. And God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that we could simply offer them Christ. Because that's what we have, and that's what you call us to give. So God, this morning, send those people to us, and send us to those people and renew our hearts. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, who gave his life for us so that we might be saved. Amen. Would you stand and sing?